that's disgusting. Here's a Japanese sandman sneaking on with a Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're discussing the 1986 horror film The Fly. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Not much. It's lockdown still. <laughs> it's the same four walls I keep staring at. <laughs> well, I guess along those lines, we are still putting out the lockdown episodes of the Good Friends of Jackson Lies to our Patreon backers. There's one of those going out every two weeks between our regular episodes. So if you are backing us on Patreon, keep an eye out for those. And this summer, we'll be putting out our next issue of The Blasphemous Tome. This is our fanzine that we send out to all our Patreon backers. We put a print copy out in December and a PDF copy out in the summer. And if anybody has any contributions that they'd like to make of any short articles or pieces of artwork, that would be marvellous. And we'd love to see that. I'm doing a new scenario for this edition, a scenario called The Murder Shack, which is an adaptation of a convention scenario I wrote for Dead of Night many years ago, but I am revamping it and turning it into something a bit more, well, Call of Cthulhu, really. I wonder if the title has Love Shack with just love crossed out and then just murder <laughs> written in crayon over the top of it. <laughs> Poor blood. <laughs> yes. Now, I'm not the most active on social media, so I don't really get how it works, but Scott's been spending a lot of time on our Discord, I understand, and that's going pretty well from what you're saying? For those of you who haven't already joined, we do have a very active Discord server. This has sort of become the heart of our online community since the uh, sad demise of Google+. Oh, gosh, over a year ago now. And, yeah, we've got about 600 members on the Discord server now, and it has become very lively. So, yeah, if you're enjoying the podcast and want to talk to other people who listen to it, then please do come along. I shall put a link in the show notes. And now on to our main topic, The Fly. So this is following on from last episode's discussion of disgust and body horror. And as we've done when we've talked about other subgenres of horror, we thought it might be useful to provide an example. And, well, The Fly is one of the defining examples of the body horror subgenre. We did discuss some other David Cronenberg films, oh gosh, all the way back in episode 12, if you can think back that far. That was the best part of seven years ago. Was that where he said, I can't remember what the name of it was now, was it Slither? Or yeah, shivers. Again, shivers, that's it. Where it had a happy ending. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In Cronenberg's opinion. Yes. And yeah, we might perhaps talk about how that attitude of his influences this film. Now, this film is a remake of Kurt Newman or Neumann's 1958 film starring the wonderful Vincent Price, which I watched this very morning. Oh, right. Vincent Price has some crystal blue eyes in it, I must say. And uh, yeah, it's marvellous. Did anybody else get to watch that? Yeah, I, I watched it years ago. I remember it being black and white, though. So no, no. How did, how did you work out you had blue eyes? No, no, it's colour. Maybe your TV was black and white, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into the problems with your TV again. <laughs> and interestingly, the intro to them both uses the 20th Century Fox kind of ident, you know, the da-da-da-da, you know, the, what do you call it? Like the graphic bit showing the 20th Century Fox logo. And they both use the identical same one. So. I kind of wonder 
1986, they were probably using a different version of that. And I just wonder if they used the same one just for a kind of homage or homage. Very probably, yeah. And this also, in turn, is based on the 1957 short story by, and I'm probably going to mess this guy's name up as well, George Langland. So the Cronenberg version was based on the script by Charles Edward Pogue, who had been hired to write this remake of the original film. And had decided to take it in a different direction even before Cronenberg was attached to it. He had decided to go away from the original presentation in both the short story and the 1958 film of uh, the transformation into a monster being an instant thing that when the protagonist goes through the teleporter in the original film of the story, he ends up with the head and the hand of a fly. And there's no sort of slow degeneration or anything like that. It's just bang, done. But he d decided it would be more effective for the horror to turn it into this this slow transformation into a monster, which certainly very much suited Cronenberg's style. I mean, Cronenberg, when he took on the film, Cronenberg was at the time originally attached to direct Total Recall, which would have made for a very different film, I think. That fell through, and in the meantime, another director by the name of Robert Bierman, an English director, had been attached to the fly. But then he suffered a family tragedy. His daughter died in an accident, and he had to withdraw from it. And at that point, Cronenberg came back on board, rewrote the script, and we ended up with the, the film we know today. Still wondering how he would have directed Arnie in Total Recall. Because, yeah, as you say, that would have been a very different film. Yeah, I don't think his version was slated to star Arnie. I could be horribly wrong about this, but I've got it in my head that it was James Woods who was supposed to star in it. Yeah, if that had happened, I might actually like the film. Now, one thing I was very surprised to see when looking through Scott's notes and research on this, there was a name attached to this that I would have had no idea in a million years would have been connected with this. Mel Brooks apparently produced this, although took mm. his name off the film so that people wouldn't get the wrong idea about what it was about. Yeah, he did the same thing when he produced David Lynch's The Elephant Man a few years before that. He had this production company, I it may still be going, called Brooks Films, and he produced a lot of unexpected things like that. He'd obviously made his name with things like The Producers, Silent Movie, Blazing Saddles, stuff like that, and you know, people associated him with comedy. It's kind of odd to see him doing stuff like this. Well, I don't know. I think when you think about The Elephant Man, yeah, definitely, because mm. I can't really think of any comedy in that. But with this, it's hard to say, is it more comedy or more horror? You think the flies are comedy? There's definitely bits of it yeah. that qualify. There are certainly absurd pieces, or, well, yeah, maybe we'll get into that a bit more when we start going through the synopsis. So this was Cronenberg's breakthrough film. Up to now, he'd been, uh, you know, a cult director making these weird films like uh, Videodrome and Shivers and so on, and people's heads exploding and, and all sorts of wonderful things like that. But now, here we are, and he's kind of got a big box office hit with a star like Jeff Goldblum. Now, was Jeff Goldblum the massive star at that point? I mean, it's before Jurassic Park and so yeah. on, but I'm guessing he was a pretty big star at that point. No, I don't think so. I mean, he'd been around for a while. I mean, gosh, I yeah. remember him from television in the 1970s when he starred in the TV series Ten Speed and Brown Shoe with Ben Vereen. He'd been in quite a lot of films. I mean, I've certainly seen him in a fair few, but I don't think that he was the big box office name that he became. And I think, yeah, actually, probably for him, this was a bit of a breakthrough film as well. The Fly was a commercial success and also a critical success. And many critics featured it on their 
year's best lists for 1986, winning an Oscar for its special effects. I think this is, to date, the only Cronenberg film that's actually won an Oscar. Which is a shame. There was one sequel to this that was made in 1989, not by Cronenberg, called The Fly 2, oddly enough, and featured Martin Brundle, the son of Brundle and Quaife, who we'll obviously learn a bit more about that as we go into the synopsis. I haven't seen that since its release on home video, gosh, all those years ago. I don't remember it as being very good. I mean, it introduced all sorts of conspiracy elements and this evil corporation and the son's inheritance of his father's condition and stuff like that. And I remember it as being a bit of a muddled mess. I saw the trailer and that was enough. (laughs) Boy, did it look bad. Thinking of sequels, and in a bizarre fashion, actually, uh, Cronenberg adapted The Fly into an opera, of all things, in 2008. What the fuck? I mean, I've not seen this, but I am utterly intrigued. I just really want to know how this works. There's lots of buzzing. That does sound like it could be horror. Cronenberg almost made a sequel in 2009, but the project fell through. Apparently this was to be more of a sidebar story rather than a straight sequel. I think that's more of a trait of modern films where they turn around and say, hey, we're going to create a film that then ignores X, Y and Z in the canon. In Cronenberg's case, I mean, he said, and I think he's quite right in this, that he wasn't interested in going back and just revisiting the same story and sort of rehashing it, that you know this didn't seem like a very creative exercise. So he sort of wanted to do a riff on it or a parallel story or something like that, that sort of expanded it in different ways. And I think that is a much more interesting approach than just, this was successful, let's do it again and change a couple of elements. I can see why that fell through then. Studio execs wouldn't, oh, yeah. see, the, I wouldn't see the dollar signs. Personally, I think it's a shame it never happened. I mean, that could have been an interesting... Uh, little exercise and also special effects have come on a long way since then and i mentioned to my kids that i was doing the fly and they were like what's that and i'm like, it's a film where a man turns into a fly and they're like what you mean he's like they use computers to turn him to fly and i'm like no it was 1986 yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. we'll talk about some of the special effects as we dig into yeah, yeah. The, the synopsis but i think in general practical effects like the makeup effects and the prosthetics and so on that we see in this haven't necessarily advanced that much while there is a lot of cgi that can perhaps enhance these if you want to see how this can backfire just take a look at john carpenter's the thing versus the what was it 2011 prequel so they went from practical effects in the the carpenter film to cgi in the 2011 one and it looks fucking awful it really does it looks very sort of slick and artificial. artificial i think for body horror like this physicality that sort of wet gloopiness the texture of the physical makeup effects is far more unpleasant than cgi would be and now we move on to the synopsis and talking points for the fly Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, meets Veronica, or Ronnie as we get to know her, Quaife, played by Gina Davis, at a party. It's kind of a, a fairly upmarket party. Quaife is a science journalist, and Brundle is a charming and quirky inventor, not a mad scientist at all. Brundle promises to show Quaife an invention that will change the world, this thing that he is working on, and he invites her back to his laboratory come apartment, this sort of converted industrial space. And there he demonstrates to her his 
telepods, these sort of things that look like phone booths from hell, I guess. These sort of big industrial metal things with all sorts of heat sinks and they're nasty looking things. And he uses them to teleport her stocking across the lab. Of all the things he could teleport, it had to be a stocking. <laughs> Just seems so mundane. <laughs> I think the idea is sex, Matt. <laughs> Yes, it was flirtation. Uh, you see, I didn't get that. I just well, went straight for practicality. <laughs> and also the viewer gets to see her taking her stocking off, which, you know. Uh, priorities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Against Brundle's wishes, Quaife pitches his story to Stathis, oh, yeah, Stathis Barans. I have trouble even pronouncing the name. Uh, played by John Getz. Uh, he's a publisher for Particle Magazine, who have this wonderfully megalithic building for such a niche uh, publication. It seems <laughs> yeah. it seems crazy. Um, he's the clingy former, lo former lover of Quaith. Um, Baran's dismisses this story as nonsense, as frankly everyone should do, based on the complete lack of evidence and just a tape recording at this point, which really dates the film by. My God, it's a cassette tape. I haven't seen one of those things in fucking years, and he puts it into a player. <laughs> Well, I was thinking about this when you talk about the age of the film. There was 30 years between the first two films, and this film is, that we're now talking about is now 30 years old. Oh, almost 35, yeah. It was 1986 it was made. So are you saying that the, the cycle is completed again and that we're due for another remake of The Fly? Yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> so Bruntle is relieved to hear that this story isn't going ahead. But he then agrees to let Quaif observe his work and write a book about the development of the, the telepods and his ultimate success in transforming travel. The main problem, however, is that the telepods are absolutely awful at handling organic material. And Brundle demonstrates this by turning a baboon inside out, you know, like you do. Yeah, not a rat or a guinea pig like he does in the original film. A fucking baboon. Go big or go home. And then he has another one later on. It's like, where's he got all these baboons from? And why are you using a baboon? I can't imagine they're cheap. Couldn't get any orangutans at the store that day. He's like the Joe Exotic of weird science. <laughs> as Brundle and Quaife work together, they also become lovers, as you do in stereotypical fashion. Their sex life gives Brundle a new appreciation for the nature of flesh. Yep, I can see how that would happen. <laughs> and he pro and he programs this into the telepod's computer. Again, as you do, this 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 whole section seems to be very what the hell leaps of illogic. But mm. it seems to work because the next time he teleports the baboon, it works. So of course, <laughs> what does he do? He celebrates by cuddling it naked. Oh, he does. Yeah, that whole naked baboon cuddle scene is just really weird for a number of reasons. One is because of the way it looks on the screen, but also it's a fucking baboon, and you know, I mean, they, they used obviously real baboons for this. So that's Jeff Goldblum standing there in. Well, actually, I think he's still wearing his underwear, holding a baboon, and these things. I mean, they are. Not tame. I mean, even the ones that are used for film work and so on, I mean, they're still fundamentally wild animals. And apes like this have got a nasty reputation for hurting people, ripping their faces off, biting them, gouging them. And just the idea of standing there naked, holding this yeah, potentially dangerous wild animal. I mean, Goldblum is a much braver man than I am. Looking at him uh, later in the film, something that 
actually Tiff pointed out rather than I didn't spot it the first time, but he is really goddamn tall. Maybe the baboon was just oh, yeah. really intimidated by the guy's physical presence. Oh yeah, yeah, he's six foot four. He's he's a big man. Mm. And also in the original screenplay and also in the original story, I mean, the couple at the centre of it are a married couple. I can't remember whether that was the case. I think it was in the original screenplay from Pogue for this, but Cronenberg changed it to the lovers meeting and their relationship developing as the other events of the story unfurl. I wondered how much of an impact that has on sort of the stakes and the horror throughout the rest of the film. Well, they certainly couldn't pad out the running time as much as they did without it being... uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit slow up to this point, I have to say. I don't know, the romance element adds another dimension, which, you know, it kind of needs to carry it through, particularly because of the direction they take the story. Um, Yeah. Which is, you know, is different to the original film, which is fine. The fact that they are slowly building intimacy at this stage, and then the intimacy is corrupted and tainted by the effects of what happens. I don't know. I think that does add a certain additional dimension to the whole thing. The celebrations are cut short by a package from Baran's containing the cover of the next issue of Particle magazine featuring Brundle's teleportation breakthrough. Baran's has already exhibited some stalkerish activity. Yeah, this guy's a really sleazy, controlling douchebag, to use the term yep. of the time, I would say. Creep. And, uh, creep. And uh, and Quaif realises she has to confront him. Good for her. Which makes Brundle jealous. He is fairly distraught that she's gone off to see this man that he now realises is her ex-lover, particularly at the moment of his triumph. So Brundle carries on drinking while she's away. And then, you know, obviously fueled somewhat by his emotional state and by the booze and by, I think, his incipient megalomania, he decides that he's going to abandon his original plan to have the baboon thoroughly tested for genetic anomalies before teleporting a human being through, and teleports himself. Don't don't forget him pouring his heart out to the baboon in the process. He goes through this long, kind of almost self-justifying monologue that he directs to the baboon. The poor thing just sits there kind of going, I don't know what you're talking about, I'm a baboon. (laughs) <laughs> and just like shakes its head <laughs> every so often. But what he doesn't realise in all his hurry and drunkenness is that he is not alone in the telepod when he teleports. This fly has buzzed in there and landed. And when he teleports across, he arrives entirely safe and intact. There's no trace of the fly, but that's nothing to worry about. Everything's fine from this point onwards and we have a happy ending. But it took a third of the running time to get that far. I guess this is an artefact of the way that horror stories worked at the time. It's interesting that the film that Cronenberg had worked on before this was uh, Stephen King's The Dead Zone. I think the structure of this film owes quite a lot to the style of horror that was popularised by Stephen King at the time, and certainly to what mainstream horror was, particularly in publishing and to some extent in films. This idea that you spend a significant part of the initial running time sort of establishing the reality of the setting, establishing the characters, establishing the stakes, before you introduce the horrific elements. And I don't think it's something we see perhaps quite as much now, but this was, you know, very much the mode of horror storytelling back in the 80s. You're right, I think this, out of all the aspects in the film, is probably the one that is dated least well. 
So strange thinking of the Dead Zone. That's probably one of the most faithful Stephen King adaptations I can think of as well, following a similar format that it has a good degree of lead up to when stuff finally goes down. Later, once Quaif returns and the two reconcile, they enjoy a marathon sexual romp that knackers Quaif. Brundle seems inexhaustible and can now perform exceptional feats of gymnastics. He believes that the teleportation has purified him and encourages Quaif to undergo it as well. Brundle's personality also changes. Becoming manic and grandiose, he starts eating nothing but sugary snacks. He's got a coffee in the, in the cafe and he's just like piling sugar into it. And he sprouts large, coarse black hairs from his back. He had like a, a cut on his back and these hairs start to grow out of it. All normal stuff, but it unravels the burgeoning relationship between Brundle and Quaife. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. No, not you. You're too chicken shit to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club. Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. Seeking a woman who can keep up with him, Brundle hits a seedy bar. There, he partakes in an arm wrestling contest. And in a fairly gruesome, you know it's coming, you know it's coming, it's just <laughs> when it's going to happen, snaps his opponent's wrist until the bones poke through. This wins him the affections of the barfly, brum, tsh, called Tawny. And boy, is that scene disgusting. Oh, I love that scene. We talk about how old this film is. I mean, yes, it, it is an old film, but there are a number of scenes in this that still make me squirm in my seat when I see them. There's this, and there's a scene coming up in the bathroom a bit later on involving fingernails. <laughs> and yeah, the, the fact that the film still has this kind of power to disgust and discomfort, I think is you know, a testament to just how powerful it is. After some sexual escapades, Brundle encourages Tawny to go through the teleporter. Yeah, she's not having this, and he tries to force her, but he's only stopped by the return of Quaif. So she turns up, and there he is with this other woman. At this point, Quaif utters the film's tagline, Be afraid. Be very afraid. A line which apparently was written by Mel Brooks. I don't know, that just amused me for some reason. But yeah, one of the defining quotations in horror cinema was written by Mel Brooks. Just as an aside, Mel Brooks' son is obviously a, a horror aficionado as well, Max Brooks, who, apart from anything else, is, is best known for writing World War Z. Oh, I didn't realise they were related. So after Tawny flees, Quaif tells Brundle that she has had these strange new hairs that were growing out of him analysed, and they contain genetic material from an insect. Brundle is just in denial about all this and kicks her out. Eventually, though, he takes stock of these changes. His teeth are falling out and there are strange lesions and hairs all over his body. He discovers that his fingertips exude a sticky white fluid. <laughs> uh, talk about disgusting scenes. And then 
his fingernails start falling out. Although, to be fair, he gives him a bit of encouragement. I mean, he's sort of probing and examining his fingers and squeezing them until the fluid comes out. And then, yeah, as the fingernails come loose, he's sort of prying them off and hesitantly, reluctantly. And yeah, it's... I mean, this is, I think, for me, you know, where body horror comes into itself. Because on one level, it's an utterly alien thing. It's something that we can't necessarily imagine. But on the other hand, I mean, there are all sorts of changes that our bodies have gone through by the time we're adults, like losing teeth. I don't know about you two. I I still have dreams every now and then where I've got teeth falling out, these childhood memories of losing my milk teeth. And... The whole thing with puberty, where you start growing hair and your body changes in ways that you aren't perhaps prepared for. And I really see scenes like this as being sort of disgusting echoes of that. I'll fit with the disgusting part. <laughs> but uh, not, not something I've ever really, at least not to my memory anyway, experienced. You don't remember your teeth coming out when you were a kid? No, I remember that. I just don't remember dreaming about them. When stuff like that happened when you were young, did you just take it all in your stride, or did it ever discomfort you? No, it was, hey, I'm getting another quid under my pillow tonight. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about you, Paul? Uh, I don't remember being particularly traumatised by it, no. Not traumatised, but... I mean, I can see you drawing a comparison with like the, the losing the fingernails and so on. I can see a parallel, but I wasn't that sold with the reality of the the whole fingernail special effects in this um because really? well mainly because of the tone of the film being a bit kind of i don't know it didn't it just didn't feel that gritty to sort of pull me in to sort of suggest that was very realistic um, oh gosh uh, i think you saw it at the time and you, you're sort of carrying this memory with you i wasn't that taken with it the first time i saw it and, and this time kind of no more really so I found myself a bit disengaged. No, I mean, I saw it at the cinema when it first came out, you know, back in 1986. Yeah, when I saw those kind of films, I was like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, I can remember going to see Terminator 2 twice and just like at the cinemas. I was so blown away with the special effects. And I just could not believe what I was seeing. You know, now I've watched it and it's like, okay, yeah, it's just another movie. Yeah, I think the special effects in The Fly have actually held up relatively well. As I said, I, there's something, I think, timeless about practical special effects. CGI dates very badly. I mean, if you look at a lot of films from the 90s where they started bringing in CGI effects, the vast majority of those you know, look pretty shoddy now. I mean, there are exceptions. I think Jurassic Park did it all right. But then again, Jurassic Park used an awful lot of practical effects as well. There are obviously advances in how you create prosthetics. and But fundamentally, you, know, you are still seeing on the screen you know, something that is, in some respect, really happening. I think that is a more visceral experience than CGI has been until relatively recently. Checking the computer records, Brundle figures a way to give the audience a huge amount of exposition. Uh, <laughs> even though we already know what is happening, he has to print it out on the computer screen to say that man went in, fly went in, half man, half fly came out. Oh my mm. God. Um, <laughs> so uh, now we know what's happened. Oops. I mean, the whole presentation of the computer in this is a bit, well, both of its time and not of its time, in that the kind of interactions he has with it are the kinds that you might be able to manage with an expert system these days. But it is still 
much more of a plot device than a computer interface. He talks to it and asks it questions in plain English, and when he's programming it, he tells it things in plain English, and it just spits back answers. And certainly at the time, it did nothing for my suspension of disbelief, and it did even less now. Especially considering that he berates the computer earlier as being dumb, that they only do what you tell them to do. No, they, they don't even fucking do what you tell them to do now, so... <laughs> mm. Weeks later, Brundle asks to see Quaithe. She is shocked by the changes in him. Brundle's skin looks diseased and he can hardly walk, shuffling around on canes. As they speak, his ear falls off. Brundle is concerned that he is dying. Now, this really strikes me as odd that he's been called manic cocaine fiend and then weak old man and then suddenly goes later into full-on strong monster. It seems weird that he's... He turns weak at this point to me. I think that's just the mechanism to try and create some sympathy for him. I also don't find it that unrealistic that if his body is going through these drastic changes, that it goes through an intermediate stage where parts of him are transforming in ways that don't make him stronger. And then by the end of it, that he's moved past that stage and the diseased, weakened human parts of him are literally dropping away, leaving something new underneath. So, no, I I actually bought that completely. Although you can definitely tell this is another bit that Brooks had his hand in, I think, where, I can't remember what he takes, a bite, he goes to eat something and throws up all over it as a fly would (laughs) and then just turns around and looks at Quaith and just says, that's disgusting. Yeah. (laughs) After an unsuccessful attempt to get help from Barans, who is more concerned about contagion, Quaife visits Brundle again. This time, Brundle is in better spirits, having discovered that all that sticky stuff oozing out of his fingers now means that he can climb walls, like Spider-Man, <laughs> only he's Fly-Man. Your friendly neighbour <laughs> fly. Good. Mm-hmm. And I think this is sort of a, a Cronenberg trademark. I mean, we sort of touched on this earlier, that I think in another filmmaker's hands... Brundle's condition would have been seen as wholly negative. But I think the same way as Cronenberg has sympathy for diseases and sort of sees mutations as being positive things, or at least constructive things, that he presents at times this monstrous transformation as being, well, maybe not a good thing, but certainly as turning brundle into something more than human rather than less than human Hmm. instead of being terminally ill brundle has deduced that he is transforming into a human fly hybrid fuck it took him four weeks to find that (laughs) Um, or as he calls it brundle fly at his behest quaif starts documenting this filming brundle consuming sweet treats by vomiting digestive fluids all over them and sucking up the resulting pulp i mean this was another comedy bit i thought um yum yum yum. i wonder if mel brooks came up with the brundlefly thing as well but and also you have the fact that she's filming this it sort of cuts from this to her showing it to borens and and his uh, yeah we don't actually see it on the screen we just see Mm. his reaction which is pretty much exactly what you'd expect from someone seeing film with that hey you're gonna be on the dinner later mate don't (laughs) you you're right to look afraid And immediately after showing it to him, Quaife reveals that she is pregnant with Brundle's child. Brands offers to arrange an abortion. Quaife has a nightmare about David Cronenberg, who plays the uh, gynecologist, delivering her baby. And you can see the doctor at 
between her legs and he's kind of looking horrified and the nurse screams and it's a giant maggot that comes out. <laughs> Best scene of the film. Yes, <laughs> it probably is. This occurs to me that the film he made after this was Dead Ringers. Uh, yeah, I, is, I've thought about that, yeah. Which is that film with Jeremy Irons where he's playing identical twin gynecologists who are undergoing a sort of psychotic break, a folie à deux, in which they start seeing bizarre deformities in the women they're working on and creating these special instruments for operating on mutant women. Mm. I wonder whether this scene sort of planted some of the seeds of that. I've not seen that film. I think it will remain that way. Oh, well, that's a really good film, Matt. I, I think it's probably my favourite Cronenberg film, possibly even more so than Videodrome. Hmm. I was going to stick with Dead Zone, but fair enough. In the meantime, Brundle is mulling over a possible cure for his condition that involves merging himself with one or more other people to try to reintroduce more human genetic material into his mutating form. While he doesn't end up going ahead with this, it does plant the seed of an idea. And also, there was a scene that was cut around this time. I've not seen it, I've just read about it where Brundle is experimenting with this idea of genetic splicing using the telepods. He gets a stray cat, an alley cat, and he merges it with his surviving baboon, creating this horrible, agonised creature that he ends up beating to death with an iron bar to put it out of its misery because it, it is just unviable. When they showed it to test audiences, this was the point at which the audience lost all sympathy with Brundle. That, you know, regardless of everything else he was doing, regardless of how monstrous that he was getting, the fact that he threatened people, the thing that crossed the line for him was the fact that he killed an animal, uh, albeit a, a mutant hybrid animal on the screen. And that was it. That was the turning point. They couldn't get past that. So that, that scene got removed. I can kind of see that I'm not a fan of animal cruelty in any way, shape or form in films I watch. But I can see thematically how it would be a scene that he would have wanted to include because it then makes the final scene resonate a bit more because it's mm. suddenly a role reversal. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wouldn't have been happy to see that. I'm generally okay with stuff like that in films because I experience stuff that's happening fictionally very different from stuff that's happening in reality. So real cruelty, violence of any kind towards people, animals, genuinely upsets me in life. But I can watch endless amounts of it on the screen without getting upset in the same way because it's not real. And there are films, obviously, that cross that line, like The Excrable Cannibal Holocaust, which has all sorts of scenes of animal cruelty in it which aren't fake. That is one of the few films that I wish I could unwatch. But for stuff that is not real, for stuff that is fictional, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's imagination. I'm okay with that. Mm. Quaith visits Brundle to discuss her options, finding him changed even more. His medicine cabinet is now full of discarded body parts. And I... Just reading the head in the notes here, I didn't realise his penis was amongst them. I know he no, was. I didn't he... notice that either. Yeah, you see it very briefly. Yeah, I mean, you see this what he refers to as the Museum of Brundle, uh, natural history. In, yeah. in that, that's mm. right, natural history of Brundle in the medicine cabinet. All these discarded bits, like his teeth and so on, that have fallen out. He doesn't catalogue them. I'll mention them on the screen. But sitting on the glass on the left-hand side, you just see it for a second. There is something that is very obviously his penis. I thought it was a finger or thumb or something. But I remember it being long and cylindrical, but... Uh, Before Quaife manages to tell him about the pregnancy, Brundle warns her that his insect nature is making him predatory and he worries that he will hurt her. 
Have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion. No compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, uh, but, oh, I'm afraid, um... I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying... Saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying I'll hurt you this day. She leaves and heads off for the abortion, unaware that Brundle is following across the rooftops. I was more thinking it was almost uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame kind yeah, of style. Yeah, it was very yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah I, I thought that. But before Quaife can go through with the procedure, Brundle smashes in through the window of the doctor's surgery and drags her back to the laboratory. There, he pleads with her to keep the baby, saying that it may be all that's left of his humanity. When there's a great big glass wall, you know some fucker's going to smash their way through it. It's just a matter of time. Why do the two guys kind of leave her alone in the room for a bit, and then there's this massive smash as Brundle crashes in through the wall... And then it's like this massive pause before the the two other guys come back into the room. Like, what are they doing? This is probably a turning point. But is there any particular point where you think sympathy is lost for Brundle? Mm. I was intrigued by this because I think Cronenberg's intention was to maintain sympathy for him all the way through. Maybe not see him entirely as a sympathetic character, but not lose sympathy entirely. I lost a fairly significant chunk when he got in the pod the first time because it just strikes, my God, you're stupid and unobservant. But then I lost (laughs) all of it when he went to the bar. Because it was, hey, I'm prepared to use anyone for my own ends. Hmm. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think from a role-playing point of view, it's something that as GMs, it's worth thinking about. Because when you're presenting characters, particularly NPCs, you quite often want to have the players be suspicious of the character or be sympathetic towards them. I don't know about you two. I've been surprised a number of times by perhaps relatively minor things that I've thrown in about a character or things that I've had them do that have suddenly made the players lose all sympathy for them. They suddenly see the character as an antagonist because he's made some minor slight towards someone else or just behaved in a slightly weird way. And he's gone from at that stage being a potential ally to someone who must be killed. Yeah. in the way that role players do. To be fair, that sounds like every NPC in any game. I always look at them with a suspicious eye. Through crosshairs. Armed with a double-barrel shotgun. Hey, any good Cthulhu investigator there. Borens breaks into the laboratory to save Quaif. What he really should have done was take dynamite with him, then he would have been set completely. <laughs> However, Brundle pounces on him from the ceiling and vomits digestive fluids all over him, dissolving his hand 
and his ankle. Yeah, this is a pretty grotesque scene, particularly the hand melting away. I thought it was probably one of the weakest special effects, to be honest. But I was intrigued by the way Borins is presented as a character at this stage, because until now... He's been this creepy stalker character. He's been manipulating Quaif. There was a scene which we didn't mention where Quaif is going shopping for a present for Brundle and Borens turns up and just starts getting really weird and jealous about the fact that she's moved on and is seeing someone else. He's generally been the worst kind of toxic asshole all the way through this. And suddenly we have him bursting through here, playing the hero, trying to save her. I can sort of see that as a redemption arc and stuff like that. But I don't know about you two. I mean, that actually made me quite uncomfortable that you had this almost stalker type character whose toxic behavior was suddenly being shown to be... Uh, you know, almost a positive thing. I didn't get that. I got that he was very much acting from his own selfish angle, that he wants to protect or save Quaife because he has his own desires for her. Brumblefly is something that's in his way and presents a real threat to the person mm. that in his own twisted way he cares about. So it seems almost just like a, an escalation, if you think of it in like Dogs in the Vineyard sense, that suddenly it's, hey, I want to get rid of you, right, up, up come the guns. Yeah, I didn't see it as redeeming his kind of stalker character. I think it was just a, another side of his character. I can kind of see what you mean. It did cast him in a more, well human light but perhaps humans a more more sympathetic light perhaps but mm. you know we're, we're kind of everybody's suddenly on the side of the humans suddenly against this half human half fly sort of monstrous thing yeah i guess so before brundle can eat borens's face quaif interrupts him and while brundle agrees to spare borens he insists that quaif goes through the teleporter with him fusing them and their unborn child into the ultimate family <laughs> I thought that was really creepy. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. Mm. Kind of, I'd like to have seen the product of that, to be honest. Yeah. There's your sequel. <laughs> In her struggle to escape, Quaif <laughs> seizes Brundle's jaw and just... Well, she doesn't necessarily just rip it off. It's, at this stage, it sort of comes off and reveals these sort of insect mandibles underneath. And this precipitates what I'd like to think of as a meat avalanche, where all the redundant, rotten human flesh clinging to the form that lies underneath Brundle falls away. The chrysalis ruptures, yeah. Mm. And it reveals the true chitinous form of Brundlefly underneath, this jagged, angular, insectile, monstrous thing. Brundlefry forces Quaif into one of the pods and enters another. There was a very brief mention that kind of struck as, hey, this is a plot point I'm going to use later, right at the very beginning where he mentions that there is a third pod, but it's a mm. bit quirky. And you think, yes. yeah, that's, that's definitely going to come up at some point. Well, <sighs> here it comes up. Before the computer can initiate the teleportation, however, Borens recovers consciousness and uses his remaining hand to shoot the power cables to Quaif's pod. Brundlefly tries to break loose of his pod, but it activates before he can get clear, transporting Brundlefly and fusing him with parts of the damaged pod. The resulting monstrosity staggers out of the receiving pod, lumps of metal and cable merged into his flesh. And there he lies, dead. No, not quite. Well, not quite. Almost dead. Uh, yeah. Paul, you've seen Tetsuo, haven't you? Yes. 
the way that the cables and so on were running through his flesh like tendons at this stage and there were the lumps of metal and so on, I wondered whether this particular scene might have ended up being the inspiration for Tetsuo. For those who haven't encountered it, this was a 1989 Japanese film, also known as Tetsuo the Iron Man. It is another body horror piece that involves this man sort of transforming a very similar kind of slow metamorphosis into this organic machine hybrid with all these cables and wires running through his flesh. But it is a particularly grotesque film, and maybe it's because I haven't seen The Fly since I, I saw Tetsuo, but as soon as I saw that, you know, just that, that image flashed into mind. I mean, there's comparisons, but I don't know that it would necessarily be an inspiration for it because it's like it's not a particularly novel idea, you know, melding flesh with machines. It wasn't the idea; it was just the presentation, the way it looked. It uh. it, it looked very much like the way it it happened in Tetsuo. As the mangled Brundlefly lurches towards Quaith, she grabs the shotgun. When Brundlefly makes no move to harm her, she lets the barrel drop. But Brundlefly lifts it back up to his head, mutely besieging Quaif to make her to put him out of his misery. Sobbing, she pulls the trigger and blows his head apart like a watermelon exploding across the screen, uh, ending his suffering and the film very abruptly. Apparently, this wasn't the original ending. They filmed a, a number of variants of a final scene, which basically boiled down to a dream sequence with Quaif giving birth to her child. And this time, instead of it being a maggot, it was this sort of this beautiful thing with butterfly wings. I'm kind of glad that they didn't use that because it just sounds a bit shit, really. Yeah, the maggot was far better. It did seem a very, very abrupt ending. I think it still worked. I saw a bit of an interview with David Cronenberg where he talked about, in his opinion, as soon as Brundle was dead, that was the end of the film. Hmm. But yes, the, the way it's shot, it is just sort of bang, head explodes, end credits. Hmm. I mean, what struck me watching the two films was that it's not exactly, but almost the same running time as the original as well. And I did wonder if that was a consideration, but... You've mentioned before we started recording that you really didn't like this film, Matt. Uh, partly, I think, because I enjoyed the original more, that the structure of it appealed to me more. There was no way near as much of a body horror angle that you just had the scientist have his head and arm transplanted. But the whole idea of going around to catch the fly was a bit more... Mm. Not a bit more tense, was a bit more horrific, especially with the last scene where the spider eats the fly that it seemed to just have a hell of a lot more of an impact and that it seemed to be building up to something. Whereas this one, for a start, the first third, the dialogue and the method in which it was delivered just really seemed stilted and very lifeless and monotone. And it just seemed that when finally the fly got into the teleporter and the teleportation happened, that there was any kind of impetus for the actors to put some life into the delivery of their lines, that it really just seemed like a gear shift had happened at that point. 
But with the whole weird curve, hey, I'm strong, then I'm a weak old man, then I'm strong again, and I'm a monster, and then bits of me falling off. It, it just didn't gel with me at, at all. Right. There were little scenes that I thought were quite funny, like, that's disgusting, or, hey, it's the Brundle Museum of Natural History, that were individual little moments I could enjoy. But on the whole, no, I just didn't didn't like it honestly how about you paul i'd mentioned it i was watching it to some friends and they were like well is it really a horror film and i was like yeah wow because it's i mean it's more in the vein of it's not as kind of over the top comedy schlock horror as something like reanimator but it's on the scale towards that somewhat i'd say and it's kind of got a charm but i mean i probably preferred the 1958 or whatever it is version more like matt okay. it's, it's got a good intrigue at the start she like starts off she's murdered her husband in like a, a metal pressing machine and you're like why has she done this and the film's called the fly i mean as a modern viewer i kind of know the story but it's quite a good intrigue as that story is revealed yeah I much prefer the Cronenberg version, and I think the reason for it is that, for the same reasons as I was talking in the previous episode about why body horror works so much for me, that I think body horror evokes so many things that are fundamental to being human, like fear of mortality, fear of aging, fear of disease, fear of losing one's faculties. I see all of this represented in The Fly, it has this disgusting metamorphosis that has aspects of disease, these aspects of ageing, but it also has the existential aspect of it where Brundle is struggling with the idea of whether or not he's human anymore and what that actually means. I find that, for me, is the very essence of horror, that things like ghost stories and so on work fine as frights and intellectual exercises and stuff like that. But this is something that really digs down deep within me and finds the place where I get upset. No, I got, I got none of that. If anything, I thought I found it as a story a lot more shallow than the original 1958 one because there wasn't the layers of story progressing from one very definite point to another, that it just seemed an almost cold, to some degree clinically in some aspects, scientific exploration of the, these are the changes that are happening here and this is what we can do with special effects. It didn't have the story of the original. Cronenberg is a very clinical filmmaker and this exploration of human flesh and the way it changes and can go wrong and transform is very much at the heart of his filmmaking. Yeah, just not, not a topic that's ever really done anything for me. Should we talk very briefly about how this might inspire gaming? The only thing I think that I could draw from it is Baran's and how to handle him as an NPC. I did... Not say like, because I don't think he's a likeable character in any way, shape or form. But I could appreciate how he's handled in the story about some of the things that he could do. Like sending the front cover of the magazine as a nice kind of, hey, fuck you, I'm going to do this. Uh, taunt or intimidate that could be taken a number of different ways. It could be, yes, I'm going back on a deal that I've made with you earlier. It's, oh, suddenly I've turned 180 on a decision I've made previously. But also you could read between the lines and say, well, actually, I'm kind of giving you credit where credit's due. I've acknowledged the fact that you, uh, you were onto a story and thought, hey, we can run with it. You could tweak that and go in a number of different ways but also how he just suddenly turns up out of the blue at the shop where they go to get the mm. uh, the coat where it's just he turns around in that kind of sinister 
it was me all along that was stood over here by this coat rack. Little things like that, I think, are good directions on how to use NPCs in a sinister fashion. This strikes me as being a film that is filled with Lovecraftian possibilities, because it, there are a few themes in there that Lovecraft obviously used in his own stories, like the mad science aspect of it, but also this whole idea of what it means to be human and this changing. Because we see this in The Shadow of Rinsmith, Pigment's Model, The Outsider. For example, the presentation of Brundle's transformation could perhaps lend uh, some inspiration to someone becoming a ghoul. This gradual physical transformation, this, well, it's not just a physical transformation, but the way he's trying to hold on to his humanity and recognizing his new impulses and urges and trying to come to terms with those. And I think that is very much at the heart of what transformation into a ghoul in Call of Cthulhu must be like. And I was also thinking about the mad science aspects of it, that we have teleportation in Call of Cthulhu in the form of dimensional shamblers. So these creatures that can teleport themselves between dimensions and from place to place. It occurred to me that if you wanted to do something like this in Call of Cthulhu, you could have a mad scientist playing around with dimensional shamblers, trying to perhaps turn them into living telepods or something like that. These sort of organic telepods scream in agony every time someone is transported from place to place or splicing dimensional shambler DNA into someone to try to give them teleportation powers, but at the same time making them something other than human. Or perhaps you could even just carry bits of them around like this traveling case that's got just the nervous system of a dimensional shambler and some nutrients in there and just program that and control it and all the fun ways that could go wrong. Having flashbacks to existence now. But, I mean, this whole idea of transforming player characters seems to be something that happens a fair amount of Call of Cthulhu and something I think we've used ourselves a fair bit. Um, do you think, as a player, that that is an interesting thing uh, to happen in a game? If your investigator started undergoing some kind of transformation because of exposure to a great old one or a curse or some spell gone wrong, how would you want to see that play out? I have used it quite a few times. But I think it depends on the context and depends on the character that it happens to. Because one of the best moments I can think of where it happened in a convention scenario was where the very last scene was where one of the characters realised that this was what was happening to them. And very calmly, just as they're sat in a plane, the guy looks at his hand and suddenly thinks, ah, oh, shit, I've got claws. Turns to the guy next to him, very calmly asks, uh, mind if I have a look at your gun for a moment? And then blows his brains out. That's the high point for me. That's where I want to see that kind of story go. But then in others, I've seen it where, in fact, I'm still running in one game, where there are a number of characters in the group which are transforming in different ways. But mm. it's a very slow burn and it's very subtle. And at the minute, I want to try and hammer on to that they're going to try and hold on to their humanity until the very, very last. Or they find a way to reverse it. That's, that would be their arc. One of them, there is no reversing it because it's not, not the way he's going. But it would be <laughs> how, long, how long can he remain human and how long can he hold on to what he thought was going to be his life. I'm waiting for that moment where I can drop him a message and say, this NPC's eyes look really tasty. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much if you're one of our existing backers. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. 
Yep, thanks very much to Jack Gravy. And thank you also to Robert Watson. Thank you very much to Andrew Butler. And thanks to Chase T. Hopper. Also thanks to John Hagen. I'd like to apologise in advance if I'm mangling this, particularly as it's someone I've spoken to a few times on our Discord server, but thank you very much to Jacek Brzovsky. And thank you to Joshua Levy. And thank you to Kieran Trevetti. Thank you very much to Ben Kugler. Hello, this is Gaz. And this is Baz. We're your genial, some might even say avuncular hosts of What Would The Smart Party Do podcast where you'll find a special blend of gaming chat, quality interviews, deep dive reviews, advice, war stories, and the occasional splash of actual play. So, draw up a comfy chair, get a brew going, and join the Smart Party. Level up your gaming mojo at whatwouldthesmartpartydo.com or find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all other reputable purveyors of podcasts. Well, until next time, that's enough fly for us. So it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com So, final thoughts before we buzz off? Uh.